0: Welcome to the Business Bookshelf Podcast. I am your host, Lance Pepler. Like you, I'm a lifetime learner and find books one of the best ways to do this. The purpose of this podcast, then, is to interview authors of new business books, get insights into their thinking, lives, and businesses, all in a light-friendly manner. Before we start, can I ask that if you think someone will benefit from listening to a podcast about authors discussing their books, which covers a broad range of business-related topics, then won't you tell them about the podcast? And if you haven't subscribed, then consider doing that as well. Today, our guest is Douglas Kruger. Douglas is a member of the Speaker's Hall of Fame, an internationally renowned presenter and author of over eight business books with Penguin. He speaks globally on how businesses and brands can compete through innovation and position themselves as industry experts. I speak to Douglas today about his new book, How to Grow Rich, 50 Ways to Debunk Money Myths and Master Wealth. Over a billion people today globally were lifted from extreme poverty between 2010 and 2020. This is an all-time record, both in outright numbers and per capita growth, constituting nothing short of an economic miracle. Yet the narrative about worsening hardships for the poor prevails, contrary to all evidence. Why? Few topics are more contentious than money. Yet, when weighed against empirical data, most of us would be amazed to discover how embarrassingly wrong our assumptions are and how badly they have impaired our capacity for growth. How to Grow Rich identifies every bad idea about wealth and explains why we don't have to accept them, and how each one of us can overcome these thought hurdles in order to prosper and grow rich. Start by getting the thinking right, and the money will follow. Enjoy the interview. So welcome to the podcast Douglas Douglas it's such a wonderful opportunity to speak to you again and I really enjoyed our first interview and um, what have you been doing for the last six months since I interviewed you last.
1: Well, Lance, thanks for having me again. I'm I'm always surprised when uh, when people don't learn their lesson on the first interview. <laughs> so thank you very much for having me back. Um, but yes, the uh, the last time I had uh, just released that uh, book in the United States called "Political Correctness Does More Harm Than Good." Yeah, um, and since then I've released a new one in South Africa with the um, the title "How to Grow Rich: Fifty Ways to Debunk Money Myths and Master Wealth," which is similar in. Um, in its sort of tone to the PC book, but focuses really just on the one thing. It's on wealth, debunking terrible ideas around wealth, things that we we believe but shouldn't, um, and hopefully sharing some useful lessons at a time when I think a lot of people need to hear them. Uh, so th- this really is about lifting people out of poverty on one hand and and a bit of financial and economic education on the other. And yeah, that, that keeps me busy and uh, and hopefully out of mischief.
0: No, absolutely, I always enjoy reading your books, and I enjoyed this one as well. But let's get back to your first book, and um, that I well, not yeah. your first book, but the inter- book that I interviewed you last time. And I'll, you can go, listeners can go and l- look for that podcast, and I'll have a link in the show notes. Political correctness does more harm than good. How to identify, debunk, and dismantle dangerous ideas. So, how is it going with that book?
1: You know, Lance, a weird thing is the way that the the cycles of publication work, I don't know yet. Um, Uh. The publisher in the United States will have results for me at the first six-month period, um, it seems like the, the the little bit of feedback that I've had. It seems like the audio books are outselling the physical books, and I think that just mm. makes sense. It, it's much more difficult to get into a bookstore these days, Um, and I think topics like that tend to lend themselves toward the kind of feel of a conversation. Um, So, so the feedback that I have had is that the audio books are doing better than than paperback. But um, you know, Schrödinger's rich guy. Who knows? <laughs> the, bo- the, the the cat is both alive and dead. Um, but I, can't I have heard that. that. It has had a good result on on the youtube channels um so what, what's happening there is you can see that as people get interested in the book it, it uh, picks up on on the youtube channels um and that that seems to be a good indicator
0: no fantastic and i i interviewed someone about their life story uh, fairly recently And he actually got a. So he said exactly the same thing as the audiobook is the way to go. So, you know, he wrote the book to do an audiobook almost. And he got an actor to to, um, do the voice in his audiobook, like a famous actor. Interesting. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can see the argument for doing that, because while a lot of listeners do prefer having the author read to them, the reality in South Africa is that you have to stop for the hardy-dars and you have to stop for the dustbin truck going by. <laughs> it's, it's just the most incredibly stressful thing. Yeah. Uh, but the upside is if you do do it yourself, uh, firstly, there, there are practical reasons to do it. You don't have to pay the, uh, the artist, a uh, recording studio and so forth if you yeah. have fairly high-end equipment. Um, But one of the other advantages is
0: just people enjoy hearing the author. Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, I enjoy listening to you and and your voice as well. And so, Douglas, your new book is extremely valuable and pertinent, of course, is How to Grow Rich, 50 Ways to Debunk Money Myths and Master Wealth. And. At the beginning of the book you you give encouragement to us like the normal pleb like me who is yeah. poor and wants to get wealth and the, the winter is moving into spring and things around the person's wealth can change can you give us an overview on how changing belief and introducing new rules can change a person's situation from spring to winter, uh, from winter to spring? I love the
1: way you phrase it, Lance. It's, it's as though I'm saying,
0: yes, pleb, you too can be like me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but in fact, one of the one of the points I make in the book is that it, it is so tempting to see the wealthy as almost a, a separate demographic, as, as even a different species, and uh, what, one of the simplest but most valuable ideas we learn about wealth is that it really is just a continuum. And there's a downside to perceiving the rich as, a, as an unassailable category, as sort of a, a balcony that we could never, never reach. Um, it is really just a case of learning simple lessons and applying them over and over. And mm. one of the starting points in this book, as, as you say, is just to address I think the sense of hopelessness that a lot of people are feeling right now. And that is both a global phenomenon, unfortunately with the lockdowns and a very specifically South African phenomenon. We've watched Mm. our taxpayer base shrink from, I think it was about 6 million just a few years ago to some 2.9 million now. And that's, I mean, that's a terrifying stat and, and a very depressing one. So what I start off with is the sense that when you are struggling, when you are going through the worst of it, it feels like winter, it feels impossible. You, you feel as though you will never be warm again, you will never get out of it. And yet things can change on a dime. And it's astonishing how nothing stays the same. Now, mm. what I then do is I say, let's bring some, some statistics to bear on this. And I point out how over the past 20 years, just shy of half of the world's poverty stricken have been lifted from poverty. And that's a massively under-celebrated fact. Um, in the past I think it's a decade to a decade and a half alone we've had some billion people lifted out of extreme poverty mm. so despite how it looks and feels the the global, tendency is in fact toward prosperity and that means that summer can can be and in fact is just around the corner mm. um, so because wealth is so intricately tied up with our belief systems and our psychology it matters greatly to have a little hope uh, and not to get caught up in the despair of an anomalous year and there are practical things you can do and there are belief systems that you can change
0: and in your book, you, you talk about your family and your family upbringing, and you said you grew up in a decidedly middle-class family where, you know, yeah. we're not a wealthy family by any means.
1: And that's putting it generously, yes. And generously, yeah, We yes. lived in a good area.
0: <laughs> when did things fact, change for you?
1: Really?
0: Yeah, when did your mindset change of- and, and that type of thing?
1: Yeah. This, in fact, is the origin of all of my thinking about the topic of wealth and poverty is, is exactly that dynamic. I grew up in a um, a middle to upper class area, but as the solidly mid to lower class family. And and we went through some very bad times. Uh, mm. And I try to, to, to sort of capture the balance in the books where I say, you know, we weren't Always desperately poverty stricken, but we had some very bad times. Times when uh, other people were feeding the family. Times when we had our power cut off, and there was just no way of, of solving the problem, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and I think for me, that was the genesis of thinking very deeply about what the difference was. Why were we struggling when the people around us were not? And some of the the surface level, the simple answers are entrepreneurial, they have to do with values and saving and lifestyle, but you can get into a great deal of detail. And I've spent about the past 20 years or so now, trying to get into that detail and figure out what the differences are. And Mm. once you have the answers, they are not that complicated, they're not that hard to follow. But I think the the strange thing is, is twofold. The one is that nobody shares these answers with young people. When I was about sort of say 18 to 24, there should have been the books, the lectures, the, the storytellers, and the, the soothsayers giving these ideas out to, to, to the likes of me, the people who are searching for them. Um, and the other side of it, and I suppose this informs it, is that a lot of the answers are deemed politically incorrect. Uh, It's as though we can't say such unkind things to poor people. Now, I can tell you, having been on the other side of that equation, I would rather have the answers than have my feelings spared. Uh, So what I've tried to do in all of my wealth books is to provide the answers that I wish someone had given to me. And they vary in complexity. So there are the very simple ideas going right up to the complex ones. And I'll give you just a, a quick example. The simplest but most important idea about wealth is you have to have something left over. And it's as simple as that. If you have something left over, you are on a trajectory that is making you wealthier, even if it's Mm. a very small amount left over. Whereas, if you are earning, say, a million per annum, but there's nothing left over, you're probably moving backwards. And the reason for that is that we tend to buy expensive liabilities like the cars, the sneakers, the phones, the homes, and so forth, and the more we buy these liabilities, the, the further backwards we go, we start to, to incur debt. Yeah. So the simplest wealth principle is you, you've got to have more coming in than going out. Then I get into the more complex ones, like um, what does a healthy nation look like? What if, if you were shopping around for a place to live, what would you look for? What are, what are the signs and indices? Um, and on the far side of that one, what are some of the scary indicators that you should leave a nation if you are worried about your family's future intergenerational wealth and so forth. So all the way from the simple to the complex, I try and um, look for and share the things that I've wanted to know in in my world.
0: That's a a super huge one because uh, we've both got children. And so like the future of our children is all wrapped up into this as well. But I, Douglas, I've got a financial planner and I'm His worst customer really. My wife does all the financial planning because my eyes sort of glaze over. I believe that as well, that if you like you you say you know got money left over, but then also I believe in compound interest and then that you need to pay off your debts like your home and your cars. And then from then on I'm just lose interest. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and I'm with you. And in fact, I'm, I'm not a, a numbers person per se, either. I'm, I'm mm. very interested in human behavior. I'm quite fascinated by history and who has escaped poverty over the, the decades and the millennia and why. But I'm, I'm eternally baffled by numbers. And like yourself, I'm not that interested in comparing ratios and so forth. I'm really more interested in, in the big human story, what works, what doesn't. Mm. Um, and I, I try to emphasize the, the importance of generating income. Uh, and I spent a lot of time talking about the simple analogy. We we often like to talk about picnics when we, we discuss wealth. And a lot of people will, will speak about distributing the picnic fairly. Others will talk about generating the picnic. How do you create it in the first place? I'm more interested in that side of the equation. How is wealth generated? And that's where we start getting into entrepreneurial stories. Um, and I'll tell you another area where people tend to glaze over. And it, it used to happen to me as well is when we talk about the value of starting your own business. And young people especially will think of the cigar-chomping CEO of a multinational corporation, and it leaves them cold. And I think rightly so. That, that doesn't light up a great many people. But what I then like to point out is that entrepreneurship can be Drawing a comic strip that gets syndicated around the world. It -hmm. can be opening your own little chain of teddy bear stores. It can be writing novels. Um, When we talk entrepreneurship, we tend to to employ a lot of baggage that doesn't have to be there. All of the magic, all of the things that we love around us. I mean, my, my little guy watching episodes of Peppa Pig, that's entrepreneurship. So the flavor of, of what you choose to do in order to generate wealth is entirely up to you. But what matters is underpinning that with the right principles, the principles mm. of, of wealth accumulation. And that's what I try and focus on. And I think that, mm. that, that approach to it hopefully brings a great deal of relief and a great deal of hope to young people who do not want to be part of a massive machinery, but rather want to do something that means a great deal to them. My my response to that is that's exactly what you should do. Now add the business principles.
0: Mm, yeah, those are all very, very true. And uh, I don't I don't know what you, your feelings are, but do you think in, in a country, any country, you'll always have the people that you know, become wealthy, even like South Africa, for example, or Zimbabwe, yeah. or you name it all. And um, do you think there will always be hope in a way that people can live comfortably, even if the country is sort of descending into chaos? It always, yeah, be... it, always, yeah. it always happens. You will always get a demographic
1: in even in a, uh, a failed state that mm. finds the opportunity. Now, very broadly speaking, what you require of a nation is a, a twinned combination, and you must have both, of freedom and rule of law. Now, if you go too far toward rule of law, you stifle freedom. So this Mm. is quite an interesting balancing act. What we've had over the course of the past year is an extreme of rule of law where where many of our our civil liberties, our our, um, ability to do business has been at the very least curtailed and sometimes flat out forbidden by law. Um, So that actually becomes a problem if you have too much rule of law too little and you have every bit as much of a problem. There you end up with all the freedom in the world, but piracy and theft and gangs and looting. uh, And you can't operate that way either. So in a best case scenario, you need a government that upholds contracts, upholds rule of law and ensures safety, then gets out of the way. And you need that twinned with the freedom and ability to actually pursue your hopes, your dreams, your goals and so forth. Um, So, I mean, that's the broad picture answer to this one. In a uh, a previous wealth book, and I'll just lean over here, this little orange one called Poverty Proof, um, I detailed the... One of the the, the sort of more interesting stories of escape from poverty, which was a group that went from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich. And this was Jewish people coming to the United States in around 1910 to 1920. Many of them had just left a failed industrial uh, revolution in, um, in Russia, and they came from the rest of Eastern Europe, where they were a highly persecuted group they arrived in the United States as the poorest immigrant group. And within six decades were not just the wealthiest immigrant group, but the wealthiest demographic in the wealthiest nation on earth. So there I ask simple questions like, what did they do differently? And the answers are actually very simple. They did not rely on government. And that's key. They were very entrepreneurial, um, proud to teach and help their family members to start new businesses of their own. Mm. Um, And at the same time as that, because of the the religious influence, there was very much a culture of uh, doing the right thing, uplifting and educating your children and so forth. So human values interacting with entrepreneurship and rule of law, very, very powerful combination. Uh, in in this nation, we speak about small businesses and, and their importance, but we don't walk the talk. If you if you have a look at our freedom to do business index, unfortunately, every year we fall further and further down the rankings. Which is to say, it becomes harder and harder uh, to be an entrepreneur and to start your own business
0: here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I battled last year, but that's fine. Mm. <laughs> Made it through. Now, just to remind the listeners that we're talking to Douglas Kruger about his book, How to Grow Rich, 50 Ways to Debunk Money, Myths, and Master Wealth. And uh, the 50 ways, I'd love to go through three or four of them, if that's possible. And maybe start with the very, very first one, which is choose between blame and accountability. Can you tell us about how you do that, how you take accountability and not blame other people for your situation?
1: Yes, you can do this as as an extreme or as a very simple thing. Now, I'll give you an example of both. In South Africa, we undeniably have a situation where the majority of our nation came out of an unfair scenario, and they're now, now trying to work out how to become wealthy, prosperous, and so forth. Or you can go the, the opposite end of that scale, and um, a young guy, and, and pertinent to the story, a young white guy, but about the same age as me, perhaps a little younger, um, was telling me the story the other day of the 10 reasons why he can't. And it's very interesting to see people's psychology. You have people coming out of an impoverished township scenario where you could validly say, um, this has been done to me and therefore I am the victim, but choose not to. And you equally have people who have had lots of opportunity, but choose to see the reasons why they can't. What this teaches us, simple psychology is, uh, and it's such a glib motivational phrase. It's that one that says, whether you believe you can, or whether you believe you can't, either way you're right. Now we we can apply that one to the world of economics and say, whether you believe that you are oppressed and a victim, or whether you believe that your life is in your hands, either way you're going to be right because you're going to act in ways that are self-fulfilling prophecy. You're going to do the things that act out your belief system. So unless I can get you, the reader, you, the wealth builder, past the point where you say, I own this, even if my situation is genuinely unfair, unless I can get you past that hurdle, it doesn't matter what the the other 49 wealth building ideas are. They are irrelevant. You have to own it. And that is step number one. And and that is the ultimate hurdle.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I constantly need to remind myself and refresh my mind in a way and to, to be able to have like a growth mindset, to be able to see myself as as a wealthy person, as a as a rich person. Like maybe not yeah. like financially well straight away, but rich in opportunity, rich in you know, ways of going forward, and all those different things. I need to program my mind to think positively and actively rather than negatively yes. and, and blame others. At definitely, the very definitely. simplest
1: level, mm, at the very simplest level, the idea is nobody does wealth to me. If that's yeah. the goal, I, I have to do it for myself. And I then go into a great deal of detail in terms of why government interaction with the government will not solve the poverty problem for the individual or for a nation. And I think that's one of our most dangerous beliefs in this nation is the idea government should. And if I go into great detail in the book on in terms of why that is a, a false, a flat out wrong belief, government will not solve your poverty problem, government does not make people rich, it simply doesn't work that way.
0: Mm number 16 of the 50 is a big, 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 big topic, but a very interesting one for me anyway. Develop the traits of the rich. Can you tell us a few of the traits of the rich? Yes, this this makes
1: for for good reading and interesting storytelling. So uh, (laughs) what I did there was I took a, a composite of all of the traits identified by groups like Forbes Magazine, Inc. Magazine, uh, my own studies into the topic and so forth. And I said, all right, what are the things that everyone agrees on creates self-made millionaires and billionaires? And Lance, an interesting sort of sideline point on that one. It turns out that the majority of the world's millionaires and billionaires alive today are first-generation business owners. So they are most of them did not inherit wealth most of them created it for themselves and that's an mm. interesting point so we then ask the question what are these people like what do they do differently and there are several interesting answers to that uh, one is that they are extremely low on neurosis by which they uh, w- which is basically to say they don't they don't care what other people think about them uh. um, if you are a very sort of high on the on the neurosis side of things you tend to worry excessively you'll wake up in the middle of the night worrying about the opinions of others wealthy people and it can in fact lead to a, to a degree of antisocial behavior but doesn't necessarily have to they are very self assured they know what they want and they push immensely hard for it. They they are not neurotic about what other people think. And in large part, they don't particularly care. They are on their own self-directed mission. And your opinion of them is maybe interesting in passing, but it's not going to change their behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, if you contrast that to, uh, I mean, I mentioned the the friend earlier who had the sort of the 10, 12, 15 reasons why he couldn't achieve his goal. The exact opposite is the case there. It's almost like this fixation on what's wrong with everything, why I can't and why it won't work. Now, the wealthy are just the polar opposite of that. They, they see the goal and they push relentlessly. Now, there again, it stands the danger of turning off a young person who perhaps look at, looks at that and says, well, I don't want to be a bolshie salesman. That's not me. Yeah. Now, provide the example in the book where I say, if you take someone like Ed Sheeran, Ed Sheeran is a very quiet, down-to-earth bloke He's also one of the world's wealthiest and most successful musicians. Now, this is not a salesman. This is not a hard driving used car salesman who sort of puts an arm around your shoulder and tries to con you into a deal. But there is video footage of him busking, playing his guitar and singing in central London from about the age of 12. And that's the push. There he is out there driving, driving, driving. So even for the artistic temperament, by all means, be artistic, be, be a purist. But don't sit and hide your artistic purism at home. Push it out into the world. And that's the, that's the thing that makes the difference. So low levels of neurosis, high levels of
0: push. <laughs> I, I'm reading a, another book around Amazon and Jeff Bezos, which I hope to interview the author soon. And just the, you know, the, the strength and the determination that Jeff Bezos had at the beginning to, like, yeah. see his ideas through. And Amazon at the beginning sounded like an extremely exhausting place to work. <laughs> yes. And Jeff yeah. was involved in absolutely everything and pushed, you know, all his employees and himself, sounded like to breaking point almost, to get yeah. Amazon up and running. So 100%. You know, what's
1: interesting, Lance, is that um, Jeff Bezos and and Elon Musk kind of do this in terms of world's wealthiest person. And if you read Elon Musk's uh, biography, uh, exactly the same thing. The amount of pressure, the amount of push that he put himself through, I think would have broken most most mortal men. Um, So there again, okay, that's an extreme example. And I mean, he's now one of the wealthiest human beings ever to have lived. So so that really is excessive. However, we do see the underlying principle there. It's that drive, that push, that relentless urge to go. And there's something else that's quite interesting about that is that not every wealthy person is working toward something. Many of them, like Elon Musk, are working away from something. Musk, like many millionaires and billionaires, had a, had a rough time growing up, had a, had a very difficult background story. And a lot of what he accomplished was the desire to work away from an embarrassing backstory. I mean, we uh. even started our interview today with, I mean, I, I mentioned that, that exact thing myself. Much of what I've tried to do in my life has been compelled by this desire to work away from a past that I didn't want to be the case any longer. Um, and you know, that that doesn't sound like healthy psychology. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing you'd put on a motivational poster, show a little mm. eagle going, flee from what you hate. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is, it is immensely driving to think yeah. about what you don't want out of life. Um, and
0: that can be an incredible compulsion to achieve your goals. Absolutely, wonderful. Number 20, I found interesting, ditch the big Idea fallacy—the one big idea fallacy—and replace it with execution. Mm. Feel like the mm. you know the Facebook uh, Mark Zuckerberg or whatever that one day you're going to get super rich because you've got this big idea that's going to that's going to materialize. Like this podcast yeah. is going to go viral, for example. Yes, <laughs> and re- <laughs> replace it with execution. Uh, can you tell
1: us about yeah. that? Well, this one seems to be—it bears out in just about every industry. Um, and when you when you get into the research behind it, it it is profoundly true. You you see it all over once you're aware of it. And that is, we tend to think that the thing that will get you rich is that one genius idea that you have that others don't. The reality when you study wealth building and the majority of people who have become these first generation millionaires and billionaires is that they haven't done anything profoundly new. They've taken something around them and they have executed better than others. So um, let's take an example of this one. If, for instance, uh, you and I both do sort of the, the, the um, podcasts and YouTube and, and that kind of thing, there is nothing new in our doing that. It's how well you execute that makes the difference. And it can be incredibly frustrating. I mean, we, we chatted last time about uh, launching my, my launching a second YouTube channel and eventually monetizing that one. And um, I can remember walking around outside on, on my lawn, kind of staring at the heavens and going, what am I doing wrong? You know, the first one took off like an absolute bomb. And in <laughs> several months, the second one only had a couple of hundred subscribers. Then that one video goes viral. And it's just that idea of continually blowing on the embers and eventually something takes. Mm. I come to believe that that really is the case for most things. If you study even creative art, art, um, let's take for example novelists, there are almost no novelists who made it on their first try. The average breakthrough is usually on the third or fourth novel written. And even that is pretty good. Now, when you're a young person starting out, you think, oh, I'll write my first novel and I shall become a millionaire and sail off on my yacht. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Um, and you may need to write your second, your third, your fifth novel before that one breaks through. And even then the, the first one to sell may not sell in great numbers. Uh, Lance, we were chatting uh, earlier about um, Dean Kuntz who, whose story I, I find quite inspiring. Dean Koontz is a, a great example of one of the world's best-selling living writers. In fact, he's one of the best-selling writers of all time. He's in about, I think, about the top 15. Um, some of the surveys put him ahead of Stephen King in terms of total books sold. It's a, it's a very close call between the two. But unlike Stephen King, Dean Koontz doesn't have a dramatic breakthrough story. He wrote something like 28 small books under pseudonyms and all of them flopped. Um, most of them didn't even break even. In in other words, the, the publisher gives you a certain amount up front, then you have to make that up in sales. Most of them never made it up. Um, Then of his first books written under the name Dean Kuntz, it started to slowly gain traction. And then he wrote his fifth book and his 10th book and his 20th book. And now he's sitting at something like 500 million books sold. And he's one of the, you know, the wealthiest living authors, one of the um, most prolific authors of all time, one of the best-selling authors. But it took him 20, 30 years before he even gained traction. So it wasn't about that one big idea. It was just about execution. Keep at it, get better at it, push on, keep blowing on the embers, and eventually the fire takes.
0: Amazing. So just again, we're speaking to Douglas Kruger, 50, uh, how to grow rich, 50 ways to debunk many myths and master wealth. Can we do two more, Douglas? Yeah, go oh, for it. Which oh, uh, which take oh, your fancy? Number 37. <laughs> Use empathy to grow the value you offer. And one that Why that stood out for me is because empathy is so valuable today, like to walk in someone else's shoes, yeah. to understand their feelings, like to understand where they're coming from. Those are, that's an absolutely critical business trait to have in the modern business that we're in. So using yes. empathy to grow the value you offer, what do you mean by that?
1: Right. Let's get really deep, really quickly. It turns (laughs) out that there are only three ways to get human beings to do anything. Those ways are love, trade, or force. Now, love is what you do as a parent, what you do for a charity, what you do because you want to. Trade is what human beings have been doing since the dawn of time when we are free to do so and when the law protects us. Force is a system where a central government says, thou shalt. Now, I I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the dangers of the thou shalt, but love, trade or force, those are the three ways we get things done. We are often wrongly told that um, socialism represents love. It is more accurately described as force by a central government. Free trade and love work incredibly well together. And I spend a lot of time in the book pointing out how the freest trading nations in the world are also the most charitable nations in the world. So those those two go together very well. And this is very important for a a generation of youth that are increasingly listening to this idea of socialism as kindness. And I'm deeply concerned about that one. And I worry about it for, for my child's generation. Now, it turns out that at the heart of capitalism and free trade is the idea of empathy. We are often told that capitalism or it's portrayed is this idea of get a quick buck and screw over the little guy. Well, mm. you can do that once. You can do that once, but if you want a sustainable brand and the kind of business, the kind of ongoing relationships that create real prosperity, the kind that help people to escape poverty and um, become these intergenerational groups of of families that uplift their children and create first-generation millionaires... Then empathy becomes the formula. You have to know what people need, what they want, and how to serve them. And the result of people doing that over time is that everything becomes faster, more accessible, and cheaper. Empathy is the cornerstone of all free trade, and frankly, it's one of the best things that human beings do. So mm. if you want to prosper, you can't just be in it for yourself. You have to look around at the people you serve, whether that's the people who listen to your songs, buy your books, um, buy your product from your organization, and you have to fundamentally care about them. And in fact, best case scenario, you have to outcare the competition.
0: Mm. All right. Last one of the fifty. and so we have just focused on five in the interview, is going right back to the beginning of the conversation, really. number 45 which is live frugally and i guess that's living below your income
1: yeah very surprising this one you would think that wealthy people would 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 splash their money around it Mm. turns out that only the middle class and poor people splash their money around (laughs) (laughs) the rich are rich because they keep their money Um, and there's a surprising amount of research into this one that says you know where even when you see the mansions and the cars and so forth what you tend to be seeing is uh, the, the kind of purchase that of, of by a person who is buying well below what they could actually buy. Um, so again, a surprising amount of study that says the, the, the wealthy and the super wealthy tend to be surprisingly frugal with their money. Mm-hmm. If we are impressed by the S-Class Mercedes parked in the driveway, that's a person who could buy the Ferrari, but has bought the S-Class instead. Um, and um, it's, it's interesting to see how this informs behaviors It even goes down to things like the super wealthy tend to buy um, on sales, they tend to use coupons, and they tend to buy in bulk. They find ways to, to make use of what I term ghost money. Now, ghost money is those small amounts that either stay in your account or disappear out of your account depending on whether or not you're able to see them and the rich have learned to see ghost money and to value it. Uh, and that's something that that people in the middle class and poorer people tend not to do. Um, they are very willing to to splurge the money and and rarely are as uh, as, as uh, conservative about their money as the rich and, and again thats that's quite
0: a surprising thing to, to think about. Sure. that's encouragement for me as well. So Douglas, what is the next book you're working on?
1: Ah, Lance can I can I give you a scoop Yes
0: please <laughs> So a little
1: while ago I uh, I wrote a Uh, perhaps calling it a novel is a little ambitious, a a very long short story. Um, And I've just been surprised and blessed to have had a publisher accept that one. Uh, So that was a dream since about the age of eight, nine, when I looked at Stephen King novels on the shelf and thought one day I'm going to write fiction. Uh, And I've just had the first small novel accepted. The title is The Man Who Never Was. Wow. And um, Penguin have just accepted it. And I, I don't know how long until it comes out. Uh, but I, I got that news a couple of days ago.
0: So is it work of fiction then? A story? Yeah. Yes. It's amazing. I, I have friends now with an Australian author called Zoe Routh. And she writes on like, people issues and leadership and stuff like that. And she's also told me recently that she's writing a novel as well. So <laughs> mm. <laughs> it seems to be the way things cool. are going. But wow. Yeah. Can, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. That's fantastic. When do you think that's going to be out? It usually takes um, anywhere between,
1: well, this fr- from my, my experience in the world of nonfiction, it usually takes anywhere between six months to a year for a book to come out. Yeah. But I have a sneaking suspicion this one may be a little quicker because there's much less research to edit and check. It's, it's a story and it's a fairly short one as well. So
0: fingers crossed within the next six months. Amazing. And can you give us an update on your two YouTube channels, the, you know, the both of them, if you could tell us what they are and, and give us an update on them? Yeah, sure. So the the first one is the one I started
1: many years ago as a professional speaker, which is really motivational, entrepreneurial, and and business content. And um, that one is up to, I think, about 97-ish thousand subscribers now. So so doing very well. Yeah, I'm I'm chuffed about that. Um, And the second and newer one is called Breaking Woke. And that's the one about debunking Terrible radical ideas um, down the lines of Marxist socialism and identity politics and things of that nature, uh, mm. critical race theory and, and so forth. And that one has jumped up to some eleven thousand subscribers. Wow! Well um, done. I, yeah, it's I, fantastic. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, very pleased about that. I haven't put as much effort into the the new one as the old one, um, but both are, are are chugging along nicely, and um, and I continue to create the videos. So uh, so far, so good.
0: And is there any improvement, last time we spoke about the doldrums of the speaking world, is there any improvement in that area or is it, is it no, still recovering? No, thanks for recovering? Asking.
1: <laughs> oh okay uh, lance actually uh, in fact funny funny that you should ask in general terms no but mm. i i can say that i have my first live event this week and it's my, the first live event i've had for a year wow so hopefully that that's a good sign um but in general terms no the uh the speaking industry is is really down out and in, in the doldrums so uh here's so... hoping it comes back really soon yeah, I'm, I'm like, very impressed with the this client of mine, um, having had the courage to to have a live gathering, get people in a room and say, let's get this moving again. So hopefully we see more of that.
0: Yeah, I really, really hope so. People need to hear you talk in live. You're amazing to hear live. And um, well, thank you. And it's a different energy. So Douglas, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you spending time again, which was I don't know why you did it, but you did. Um, so, <laughs> so thank you for discussing. Well, your once, book. Like I
1: say, I mean, if I if I can fool anyone into interviewing me again, you haven't learned your lesson the first time. But no, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And it's it's always great fun chatting. So thanks, thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: And your book once again is called How to Grow Rich: 50 Ways to Debank Money yeah. Myths and Master Wealth. It's been a pleasure talking yeah. to this you. This is
1: the guy, that's the cover, and it's on the uh, it's on Audible as a as an audio book as well.
0: Already. Oh, okay, good. I'll have that link yes. as well in the show yeah. notes.
1: Great stuff. Much appreciated.
0: Thanks, Lance. Thank you. So I hope you, the listener, found this as interesting and useful as I did. Always fantastic speaking to Douglas. Hope it happens again. If you'd like to contact me, then please do. My email is lance at And the website is ideastorm.zero.zero or businessbookshelfpodcast.com, which is Quite long, unfortunately, but it is. Um, if you've got an author that you'd like me to interview, you've read a fantastic business book, then let me know, and I will make sure I'll try and make sure that happens. So until next time, goodbye. Thank you, Douglas. Bye.